the platoon leader calls me up uh, and says, hey guys, I had somebody take a round. We called a medevac, but he's not gonna make it uh, if we wait for the medevac. Will you come get him? Um, and I immediately turned to my right seater and I knew that he in particular, his name was Alec. I knew that Alec could put me down anywhere. And so I turned to him and I said, Alec, let's go get him. And Alec immediately said, yep, I'm down. We're starting to work our way out from real close to the, the ground force, trying to find the closest spot we can where we think we can land. Uh, and eventually Alec and I found a spot. It was like a posted stamp right on the river with trees kind of surrounding this little spot. Um, Alec executes this approach. And I, I, I can't say for sure, but I, I tend to swear to this day, it felt like the tail rotor is hanging over the river and there's tree branches over top of the blades. Hey, welcome back to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and we have another incredible story for you in this episode. MWI's Major Jake Moraldi talks to Major Patrick Du Bois. Major Du Bois is a Kiowa helicopter pilot, and in 2010, during a deployment to Afghanistan, he was part of what started as a pretty routine mission to provide support to a ground force. From there, though, things became less routine, as you'll hear. After being diverted to provide support to another ground force that was in contact with the enemy, they were asked to do something Kiowa pilots almost never do, land and evacuate a casualty. In this episode, you'll hear Major Du Bois talk about the events that day, about their decision to land, and about what happened after they landed. You see, Kiowas only have two seats, so once they got the soldier being evacuated strapped into the helicopter, Major Du Bois had to stay behind with the ground force. Before we hear all of that, just a couple notes. First, if you're not yet subscribed to The Spirit, you can do so on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please consider taking just a moment and giving it a rating or leaving a review. Second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's Major Jake Moraldi and Major Patrick Du Bois. Major Du Bois, thank you for coming in to talk to us today. We're excited to, to hear about your story. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so to lead off, I just want to give the audience some initial context about um, where this story happened and, and where you were and what you were doing there. Um, so can you give me a little bit of background about your experience uh, in Afghanistan? Yeah, so I deployed to Afghanistan with Charlie Troop 217 Cavalry at a 3rd Combat Aviation Brigade in 2000, November of 2009. Uh, we were stationed out of Jalalabad, Afghanistan, or Fab Fenty, um, and pretty much patrolled or helped uh, support the 4th Infantry Brigade, or 4th Brigade 4ID um, for all of the N2KL. Uh, so we spent a lot of time in particular in the Konar, Pesh River Valleys, uh, providing reconnaissance and security for the infantry and cavalry forces that were there. What, uh, what platform did you fly? So I'm a Kai Warrior pilot. Um, so we, we always operated as a pair of 258s, four pilots, two aircraft, and, uh, and conducting whatever operation we were doing. Um, so you arrive in, in 2009. What was, what was your rip like? What did, what did you understand about the area you are going to be operating in based on the previous unit's experience there? 
So it sounded, one way of putting it, it sounded like it was still kind of the wild, wild west. Um, there was a, a lot of firefights going on on a regular basis, depending on the season. So in the wintertime, everything kind of calmed down a little bit. So it was a, it was a good time for us to show up uh, being in November because there was still activity. There was still kinetic activity, but it was kind of starting to dwindle as we got cold and snow in the high passes and the, uh, the, the enemy wasn't able to move as much. And so they wouldn't fight as much in the in the cold and the snow. So we got to kind of get our feet under us. Uh, and I thought it was interesting and brilliant if it was uh, done purposefully that we ripped out with the infantry division or uh, we offset the infantry deployment by six months. So when we showed up, 4-4 had already been there for six months. Uh, and six months later when they left and another brigade came in, we had had six months of experience there. Uh, so we were kind of developing our understanding of it. Uh, but in general, it sounded like there was uh, still a lot of firefights going on. There's still a lot of kinetic activity. And uh, despite the fact that 4-4 in particular was, was trying to execute a lot of KLEs, uh, even when they conducted a key leader engagement, because of the terrain up there, there's only generally one or, you know better than me, one or two ways in uh, and the same way back out. And so we would regularly see them be ambushed or attacked. Um, whether it was a simple ambush or, or a more involved complex ambush on their way out. So in those first first months of, of the deployment, what was what was the experience like? Just kind of getting your feet under you, and then leading up to the events we're going to talk about today. It was uh, especially as a, a relatively young lieutenant platoon leader. Uh, fortunately, I had a, a lot of fantastic warrant officers that were on their second, third, or more deployments that were flying with us. Uh, but a, a platoon leader in aviation is kind of a unique experience in that when I go out with four pilots and two aircraft, even though I'm the platoon leader and, and technically the senior ranking officer in that flight, I am, I am not in charge. I am not in charge of that helicopter. I am not in charge of that team. Uh, whoever is designated as the pilot in command is in charge of that airframe, and whoever is designated as the air mission commander is in charge of that flight and that mission. Um, and even though you're the platoon leader, you are not an air mission commander until you are trained to be such, uh, and you are signed off by your commander or your battalion squadron commander to, to be an air mission commander and pilot command. Um, so you have those guys to rely on, which is great. Um, and I, like I said, I had some phenomenal aviators, some phenomenal warfighters in my troop that, that taught me a lot. But early on, it's, it's really overwhelming. There is a lot going on. Uh, you're trying to listen to multiple radios at any given time. You're trying to provide support to the ground force. You're trying to find the enemy. Uh, there's a lot, um, but it's it's a quick learning curve when you're doing it four, five, six, seven, eight hours, you know, every day or almost every other day. Uh, so you learn a lot very quickly. So let's fast forward to the event we're going to talk about today. Give me a little bit of, of background. When, where, um, sort of what were the circumstances surrounding um, this event out, out in the Pesh that we're going to talk about? Yeah, so we, we were operating in the Pesh, I believe, if I remember right, it was April of uh, 2010, so getting close to the end of 4-4's uh, deployment. And we were conducting a, what was for us relatively routine reconnaissance security for an infantry foot patrol. Uh, and they basically were leaving, if I remember right, they were leaving Abel, Maine, uh, or Cop Abel, Maine, and walking up a mountain to go kind of see what was going to happen. We were providing security for them, got a call from the battalion headquarters uh, that said they had troops in contact further west down the Pesh, um, actually just west of Fob Blessing, the battalion um, headquarters. 
and asked us to, to leave the, the ground force we were supporting and go support them. And uh, so we took off to the west, got call sign frequency in a, in a relative location for that unit, got over there and made contact. Um, within a scout weapons team, as I indicated earlier, two aircraft, four pilots, we divide up who's responsible for what based on what seat you're sitting in usually. So generally the trail air, we have lead and trail, leads usually down low, uh, conducting the reconnaissance and the, and the truly conducting the security for the ground force. So that lead left seater, who is generally not on the controls flying, is usually communicating with the ground force, in particular the, the platoon or the element that we're directly supporting. That right seater is flying the left seater around uh, and is also conducting uh, reconnaissance as they go. Trails, almost sole air, sole job in life or purpose in life is to cover lead. So mm -hmm. they should be in a position at all times. If lead takes fire, they should be returning fire uh, and calling leads break and trying to help them out. That being So that in particular is the right seater's job in trail. The left seater is typically, not always, uh, but is typically the air mission commander. Mm -hmm. And they're thinking bigger picture. They're managing the mission. They're managing fuel rotations. They're talking to higher headquarters. They're trying to keep the big picture in mind as the lead aircraft is focused like a laser beam on the here and now of who we're supporting. That, that push from one mission to another mission was pretty common. Absolutely. Right? It, I mean, what is, that, what is that like to gear up for one mission? You've done all this prep. You understand roughly what's going to happen on the ground just to get a call you know, halfway through the mission you thought you were supporting to say, hey, we need you over here now to do this sort of in extremis thing. So it was, it was pretty common for us in that coin environment. Um, and I think a lot of it is this, the mentality of aviators, at least for me in particular, the mentality of scout pilots. Uh, scout pilots love to, in some ways, joke, but also uh, take it fairly seriously that if you give us a call sign, a frequency, and a grid, we will go figure it out. Um, scout pilots pride themselves on being able to adapt to whatever the mission, however the mission set changes, wherever it is. You know, one of the things that had helped is we'd been there for a few months, so I knew the AO, I knew the unit I was going to support. I had supported them before. Um, so it wasn't going somewhere totally new to do something new. Uh, we just, it's, it's kind of a scout met pilot mentality that we, we have a tendency to run to the sound of the guns to begin with. So if somebody's calling us and say, somebody's shooting over there, we're, we're, our tendency is to run that way anyway. And the hard part is actually to rein in some ourselves uh, and some of our more aggressive pilots to not run straight to the guns and go get shot at themselves. I was going to say, my experience with Kiowa pilots was that they often would do some wild things that were, were maybe fun for them, but less helpful for me than yeah. <laughs> being the guy on the ground. Absolutely. And, that, and that's what we're, as leaders, that's what we're trying to prevent against is uh, we often discussed as that whether it was with senior warrant officers or the or other commission officers like my, my troop commander my, my brother platoon leader one of our jobs is to modify our leadership style so as the air mission commander if you are in that flight you have to modify the way that you lead and you command that team based on in particular who's in lead you may have a timid lead right seater that you have to push or you may have an incredibly aggressive lead right seater that you have to keep on a pretty short leash uh, and I had both extremes in, in my organization uh, and everywhere in between. All very good pilots, but you just had to be aware of their tendencies and the way they did things. Because uh, uh, scout pilots, uh, again, all aviators, but I, I will, I'll continue to talk about scout pilots in particular, but 
we, it is beat into our heads that our job is to support the ground force. Your generally sole job in life is to support the guy on the ground. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do in any way that we can. And so one of the ways that we get through to some of those more aggressive pilots is, hey, go do any, everything you possibly can to support that ground force. But if you get shot down, you just made his or her life way more difficult and you need to avoid that at all costs because you just became the mission if you get shot down and you made their life infinitely more difficult. All right, so you guys get the call, you're shifted to the west out towards Blessing. What, what's the situation you're, you're responding to? Yeah, so we're just a couple of kilometers west of Blessing down the valley. Um, as So I laid out kind of the seat assignments. I happened to be in the lead left seat that day. Um, our squadron XO was there, and so he was the air mission commander in the trail aircraft. Uh, I had one of my um, experienced, uh, experienced W-2s, CW-2s in the right seat with me, uh, and we had a squadron warrant officer in, in trail aircraft flying in the right seat. So as the lead left seater, uh, I was on the radios with the ground force, made contact with the, the ground, the platoon that was there. Uh, and in generally a rare case, the platoon leader was actually on the radio with me. Uh, most of the time, a forward observer, the platoon leader would have the forward observer on the radios with us. They'd be managing the, the fires as well as aviation, kind of deconflicting that airspace. Uh, but I think that the, he was concerned enough at the time with the scenario that he was on the radio as the platoon leader himself, um, called us up, let us know where they were. Uh, and as especially a, any sort of gun platform and us scouts, the very first thing I want to know is where are you? Um, I, I definitely want an idea of where the enemy is, so I don't uh, put my, myself in a bad position. Uh, but the first thing I want to know is where are you? And I'm, I'm getting down low to go find you as the ground force um, if need be. So we make figure out where they are and then what we'll usually do is reference the ground force. So now start talking about where the enemy mm -hmm. is, um, which direction, how far. We'll start working our way that way and try and see if we can find somebody. Yeah, well, that's always been, as, as a ground guy, a sort of fascinating problem. It's a little less difficult with, with rotary wing aviation, but that the the art of being able to talk someone onto a target as a ground guy just because my perspective is potentially so much different than than yours um it, it always seemed like a really interesting challenge to try and figure out the best way to describe what i'm seeing and and hearing and feeling and and translating that up to you guys in in the helicopters it is it is definitely a, a difficult art um and some some ground force are much better at it than others. Some pilots are better at understanding it than others, uh, at least within the scout community. Uh, we have a lot of former infantrymen. Uh, as a commander, I had a former long tabber, 19 Deltas. So I have people flying with me that have that experience on the ground. Uh, I had a, a former E6 from the Ranger Battalion as one of my W2s, and that guy was a phenomenal lead left-seater scout pilot because he understood the ground tactical plan. He understood, understood the way they were going to maneuver and what they needed as well or better than any of us, including warrants that had been flying twice as long as he had. Um, so you, you start to build it up more and more, and then you start coming up with ways of doing it. So in particular, if when the ground force was taking fire and we're going and they're asking us to shoot back, one of the TTPs that we started using, especially because we were talking to an FO, is we would make sure that we weren't gonna hit someone or something we weren't supposed to, but we'd get a general idea of where they thought they were taking fire from. We'd, mm -hmm. we'd clear that and we'd put a rocket down. 
Uh, and then we would tell that forward observer, hey man, just like artillery, left, right, up, down, add, drop. I know you know how to do that, and they're all very good at that. And once we started doing that, once we would put a round down and ask for adjustments as if we were artillery, we'd get rounds on target so much quicker because that FO is so comfortable in doing that. Um, now, when in this scenario, they're trying to talk us on, they're in the middle of the, of the Konar or the Pesh Valley going out towards Chapadara. So we're not looking up at the mountainsides or we were, I shouldn't put it that way. We're, we're looking at the mountainsides, uh, but the impression we had was, was the fire had come from close to them in the valley. And so then you, the perspective you're talking about is, is get difficult because I'm on top uh, and trying to look down as a lead aircraft. I'm probably getting pretty low uh, so that I can pick you out and pick out individual people on the ground. Um, but I'm, if I'm that low, I'm probably going pretty quick so that I'm, I'm not a near stationary target. Um, so we are kind of dealing with that perspective difference. All right. So you identify where the Americans are on the ground and you're trying to get a picture of where the enemy is. It seems like they're not, which is traditional in, in the Pesher Kunar, like up on the mountainside. It's something that's kind of down in the valley. Yeah. Um, walk me through how, you, how you're, that progresses, how you're trying to parse where the enemy is and how you can support so in general, what we're kind of doing is if I have a distance and direction, I know where the, the ground force is, I have a, 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 an anchor point, and I'll start working from them to, in the direction of where they think the enemy is, and we'll start working our way out that way. And as the lead aircraft, I'm, as I indicated earlier, pretty laser focused on doing that uh, because I know trails up there and, and has me covered. Uh, and if I start taking rounds, they're going to come in and help me out. Mm -hmm. So we'll start working from the ground force and working out. Um, and trail is, is, like I said, cover and lead, but they're also looking further out and they're trying to make sure that there isn't somebody, as you indicated, what is more typical up on the mountainside uh, with a larger firearm uh, trying to shoot us down or, or lure us into, into some sort of trap. So we progress. You're getting a feel for where the enemy is. Kind of walk me through what happens next. So we, we uh, eventually gets to the point where we haven't found anybody yet. Um, it didn't seem like fire was continuing. There wasn't an active firefight, fortunately, uh, by the time we got there. The platoon leader eventually calls me up uh, and says, hey guys, I had somebody take a round. We called a medevac, but he's not gonna make it uh, if we wait for the medevac. Will you come get him? Um, and I immediately turned to my right seater. Uh, as I indicated before, he, he, was, he was on his second deployment. He was an experienced, relatively experienced warrant officer, but was probably no older than I was. He came straight out of high school to flight school, uh, but was a just a phenomenal aviator. Um, and I knew that he in particular, his name was Alec. I knew that Alec could put me down anywhere. And so I turned to him and I said, Alec, look, are you okay, man? Let's go get him. And Alec immediately said, yep, I'm down. So I called the my squadron XO, who's the AMC, and, and basically said, sir, we want to go get him. Let us go get him. Uh, and the XO, to his credit, because that is not something we typically do, um, he said, yeah, go. I'll start coordinating to try and get a hold of the boss and the squadron commander and let him know what we're going to do, but go get him. Uh, and so we started coordinating with the ground force, said, hey, man, we're coming to get him. Help us find a place to land. Um, the first spot they picked out was basically a big cornfield or crop field. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine somebody that's not trying to land a helicopter, it looks like this big open field. Alec comes over to try and land and, and, and aborted the approach pretty early on. So, hey, guys, I can't land there. I'm going to put the tail rotor into the crops and mm -hmm. I'm going to destroy my tail rotor. Um, we need an, a, a more open spot. And so they started scouting around and we're 
starting to work our way out from real close to the, the ground force in basically like concentric circles going outward, trying to find the closest spot we can where we think we can land. Uh, and eventually Alec and I found a spot. It was like a posted stamp of this little spot right on the river. Um, and we said, hey guys, this is where we're gonna try and put it down, meet us over here. So Alec sets up an approach to go land. Uh, and one thing to keep in mind, I think about a Kai Warrior is, it, it's a fun little helicopter to fly, but it is notoriously underpowered, especially when you are armed um, I, I couldn't at this point tell you our fuel state, but you're always concerned about, do I not have enough power to execute particular maneuvers uh, and landing and taking off being one of the significant ones that at least as a scout pilot, I am attempting to avoid, um, as much as I can. So Alec goes, finds this little spot, starts executing the approach and actually aborts the approach. And as I said before, Alec's a phenomenal pilot, um, and he didn't think he could land there. He thought it was too tight because it was right on the river with trees kind of surrounding this mm -hmm. little spot. He aborts the approach, says, I don't know if I can get in there. And the trail, one of our squadron warrant officers uh, in the trail aircraft says, I think you can make it, I'll walk you in. And so Alex sets up again and with, with commentary and um, basically commands from trail of scoot left, you got more room on the right, go forward. Alec executes this approach to this tiny little st posted spot. Um, and I, I, I can't say for sure, but I, I tend to swear to this day, um, you know, it's probably one of those tall tales that, that gets better every time. But it felt like the tail rotor is hanging over the river and there's tree branches over top of the blades. Uh, and Alec had kind of had to slide into this spot, uh, basically make an approach to the river and kind of hover in, trying to avoid the trees and sits it down. So as we set down, I can I can still kind of picture it to this day. We are left skid low, nose up, and I'm in the left seat. Um, and as we land, I kind of look over to my left, and there are three infantrymen uh, just inside the tree line. And so I hopped out, waved them over. And in the Kai Warrior, there are two seats and two seats only. Um, there is the entire back half where there could be seats on like a news helicopter or something like that mm -hmm. is full of electronics and boxes uh, to, to execute all the things we need to execute. And so these three infantrymen come running over with their compadre, uh, who is completely unconscious. Uh, he had take a, uh, taken a round in the forehead, unfortunately, and uh, went to put them, I directed them to the, to the aircraft and into my seat. And they threw, um, not threw, they, they placed their compadre uh, in the left seat uh, and kind of got out of the way. And so I went over to, to kind of strap him in and, and we'll never forget, he was completely limp, uh, he was unconscious and he's halfway out of the seat, you know, and this, the aircraft is leaning towards him a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, so I went over and I picked him up as best I could, shoved him all the way into the seat, buckled him into the, the seat belt harness, tightened him down to, and uh, we, don't, we don't fly with doors, which um, is really convenient in a lot of scenarios. We can see so much better without doors. And in this case, there's not a door in my way. Uh, but what we do have is a little armor side panel that's probably six inches wide. You know, it, it barely seems to cover anything when you're sitting in that aircraft getting shot at. But um, it, the side panel kind of swings open on a hinge. Uh, and so I had put them in that with the, the door panel that are the armor side panel open and kind of closed up that side panel. Um, gave Alec a thumbs up and, you know, kind of a good luck. I'll see you later. We'll, we'll figure this out when you mm -hmm. come back. Uh, and I turned around to go after the ground force. As I 
started to approach the ground force, I can tell, so there's a helicopter right behind me. I'm wearing my flight helmet, which is designed to prevent noise from getting in. So I can't hear anything. They're pointing behind me and yelling. And I kind of looked at him. So I turn around and there's Alec still on the ground. And uh, as I go to approach him, he is reaching from the left or from the right seat over to the left and pointing down um, as if on the other side of the, the soldier we had just put in the aircraft. And so I go running over to him and it, like hands up going, what is wrong with you? And eventually realize that the, the collective is the, the, so not what people would refer to as like the, uh, like a joystick. Mm-hmm. We call that the cyclic as directional control in the aircraft. The collective is the stick that sits between the two pilots or on the left side of the, of the left pilot, we, um, one for each pilot that is anchored at the back end and swings up uh, on the front end. Uh, and as you increase, as you pull up on the collective, you increase power, you can go faster or climb, whatever it is. We have to pull pitch as we would call it, or pull the collective up to increase power to take off. And Alec couldn't pull pitch um, because the soldier in the left seat's leg was on top of the left collective. And the, all the flight controls in the aircraft are mechanically linked. So if you move the, the center collective, or the right seater's collective, or you move their cyclic, there's an exact mimicking in the left seat, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we couldn't pull power. So I ran over there and uh, had never done it before, but knew that you could remove the, the co-pilot's collective, the left seater's collective, uh, to just get it out of the way. So I'm, you know, and there's these, I feel like, um, at least after the fact, these rare moments of, of humor uh, in combat, in high stress situations in combat. So I'm frantically trying to figure out how to take this thing apart and you know pull a pin and unscrew it and everything else. Mm-hmm. And that like real moment of humor is I, I finally get this thing removed and I stand up and I'm holding on to it like a club and look at Alec and I, I don't know what was going on with me. I think there was just enough adrenaline going that I kind of reached t- towards him and in this, in this, like, do you want to take it? And I pulled it back to myself and was like, or do you want me to take it? You want to take it? You want me to take it? You want to take it? You want me to take it? <laughs> and at some point in this ridiculous back and forth, Alec looks at me like I could, I'm a complete idiot, rips the cyclic or the collective out of my hand and throws it somewhere. And I was like, okay, gave him another thumbs up, turned around, took off. And uh, Alec was able to pull pitch and, and take off. Uh, so as I turn around, and start running to where the ground for the three infantrymen had been, they're gone. And I, it was one of those, oh shit moments. Um, and take off running where they had been, basically got to where they had been, turned a corner to the right. Uh, and it's like this little goat trail that's kind of going between these trees. And I, I'll never forget, I can still kind of picture it. As I turn that corner, I can see the trail continuing down. And I, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 meters down make another left-hand turn and I can see this instrument's boot disappear as he makes that left-hand turn. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I ran for everything I I was worth uh, chasing after these guys being on the ground for the first time in Afghanistan outside the wire by myself uh, or feeling like I was by myself. And uh, so kind of sprinted down there, made the turn, fortunately caught up with those guys, um, probably gave them a dirty look and and, moved with them back to where their platoon leader had kind of set up a little bit of a, of a hold to, to orchestrate their search for the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, they still fortunately weren't taking fire from anybody. We, uh, we learned later that there was, there was one knucklehead with an AK-47 uh, that got off one burst and he just happened to get lucky. Um, so fortunately this was not happening under fire, uh, but linked up, found that platoon leader, 
walked up to him. And so again, I'm wearing this flight helmet and all that stuff. So I take off my helmet so I can actually communicate with him and, and listen to him. And uh, not knowing anything better, I just kind of walked up and said, hey, I'm Pat. What do you need me to do? And uh, he had a similar reaction to, to you, like, uh, okay. Um, he said, you're good, man. Why don't you just hang out here for a minute? We'll, we'll figure something out. And I said, okay. So I uh, hung out for a little bit. We were sitting on this bridge. Um, this is little bridge kind of going over the, the wetlands in the valley. And, uh, eventually the, he came over to me and said, Hey Pat, these couple of guys, we, I have two soldiers that are going to take Sergeant Kennedy was his name. Uh, Sergeant Nathan Kennedy was the, the soldier I had thrown in the aircraft. Mm. And they said, they're going to take Sergeant Kennedy's equipment up to the trucks. Why don't you go with them? I said, okay. So I helped grab some of his stuff. We go walking through the valley a little bit, hit this I'm sure it's probably somewhat common for you, but as an, as a guy that's done nothing but fly in Afghanistan, hits this rickety little footbridge. Mm-hmm. It's like swinging over this big river. And uh, climb over that, clamper up a little cliff onto the road, and jump in the back of the MRAP. And uh, so I'm sitting in the back of the MRAP, and I have what is probably an E2 and maybe an E3 sitting in the truck with me. And I was like, all right, guys, what now? And they just looked at me like, this is as far as our command or our orders went. Um, you're the officer here. And I was like, oh, oh crap, what do I do now? Fortunately, within a, a minute or two, um, a, a, another four or five trucks roll up. It was the QRF had, had come to respond and help out. And so as I'm r- watching people run right past our truck and down to the footbridge to go help out, I saw somebody and it just based on the way people reacted to him, it looked like he was given commands and, mm-hmm. and orders to people. I said, that guy, you know, and he looked pretty young. So I was like, is he a platoon leader? And they, the two soldiers kind of peek out the window with me and they're like, I, I think so, sir. <laughs> and I was like, all right. So I opened the door and jump out and you can kind of see them like following after me, like, oh, oh crap. I don't know if we were supposed to let him leave. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I ran over to him and he's looking at me. So I'm wearing aviator or flight suit, different body armor. I'm carrying my helmet, which is this big goofy looking plastic thing. And uh, so he looks at me like I'm nuts. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm the pilot that just got out of his aircraft. Um, I need to get back to your base. We have a refuel point there. And my team can come pick me up. Uh, and essentially said something effective. I need to get back there so I can get back with my team and come back out here and shoot somebody. And uh, he seemed excited about that. So he, <laughs> he grabbed um, what I think was his platoon sergeant and an E7. They conversed for a second. And uh, the E7 grabbed me and was like, all right, sir, let's go. Okay. So we start walking along the road back towards Blessing, uh, past a row of trucks. And at some point, this MRAP door opens up and somebody jumps out that had to have been an E8, E9, or in in talking to some people I've met since maybe the 05, jumps out screaming his head off. And uh, basically screaming, put your helmet on. Don't you know what just, we just had somebody get shot in the head, put your helmet on. And uh, I'm attempting through this this barrage of screaming to let him know this thing is styrofoam and plastic. I can't hear anything with it on. And oh, by the way, it makes me look like a big target. It makes me look like an alien. Mm-hmm. And uh, I couldn't get a word in edgewise. So I put my helmet back on. I walked 20 meters down the road with this E7, took my helmet back off and uh, kept on walking. So he br- brings me to the last truck, says, sir, hop in, get in the truck. So I'm jumping the truck to go back to Blessing, 
and uh, they go to execute a multi-point turn to turn around. I'm in the very last seat in the MRAP, and what I had never really appreciated before is the back of an MRAP sticks pretty far beyond the back wheel of the truck. Mm -hmm. So as they're doing this multi-point turn, I am literally hanging off a cliff and going, I can't, how many months, how many hours do I have in a Kiowa Warrior in Afghanistan? I'm going to die in a truck. How did, <laughs> how did I get here? And uh, fortunately, the, the soldiers driving me around actually knew what they were doing far more than I did and uh, turned us around, brought us back to, to blessing. Uh, the whole time I've been trying to tell people, hey, somebody needs, I need somebody to get on your fire's frequency. That's what we usually communicate on. And I need you to let my team know where I'm going. Because when they come back and they don't know where I am, they're going to be fired up. I found out later that they came back and my, my exo was not so happy when he contacted the ground force and I was gone and nobody could tell him where I, I was. So I'm seeing the team fly around the valley, mm -hmm. um, kind of losing it a little bit. Eventually I got somebody on that frequency. They made contact with them said, hey, Pat's going back to Blessing, uh, meet him there. Yeah. That's pretty wild. Um, I want to wind up with, because it's such a unique experience for, for a pilot, and, and it seems like the decision that, that you and your, your co-pilot made happened so quickly and seemed so automatic. The decision to, hey, we're going to land and, and pick this guy up. I'm, I'm curious what was kind of going through your head when you got word, hey, we're not going to be able to medevac this guy via normal medevac flight. Um, I mean, what was what was that decision like deciding to land there? And so I think outside of at making sure Alec was okay with with it, and I think he viewed it the same way I did. And I think any of my um, at least brother scout pilots would have thought of it. And I think most aviators, given the opportunity, is uh, we're here to support the ground force. That's that's how we can support the ground force right now. So that's what we're going to do. Um, it's a different story, as I indicated before. We never want to become the main effort, so we don't want to get shot down. Um, but we weren't taking fire at the time, nor was the ground force. So thought it was worth the potential risk to to go down and, and try and save somebody. Um, and I kind of, especially as we had talked about doing this, went back and looked because it, it didn't mean as much to me at the time. Mm -hmm. But it means so much more to me as, as uh, somebody that's commanded and, and is now a young field grade officer. Our brigade commander had seven bas basically principles uh, that he would repeat all the time of the way he wanted us to operate. Uh, and the ones that stick out to me in particular, uh, one was to ruthlessly pursue the enemy. Uh, and so that's what we were trying to do. But one of the other ones was always take extraordinary, he had a good way of phrasing it too, always take extraordinary measures to save the life of an American soldier. And so I, I think by that point, that was ingrained in us already. And uh, th there was really no hesitation other than, like I said, I, I got to make sure that the guy that's actually going to put the helicopter down is okay with this and, and fly him to somewhere by himself. Uh, we don't operate single pilot very often. But it's like I said, he had no hesitation as well. Um, the hesitation, if there was any hesitation, uh, it's not until... It's, it's the senior officer that's that's weighing the risk. Mm -hmm. uh, and even he made a quick decision. Go ahead, guys. I'll, I'll figure it out yeah. above us. Go get him. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing story. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I think there's a lot of a lot of good and interesting stuff in there for our, you know, our ground guys and our future aviators. So I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Hey. 
Hey, thanks again for listening to The Spear. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is the best way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.